Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H brighton.org. I literally did just walk in the back door. She was not kidding about that. They didn't just find me on the street. Like, hey, you look like you could preach. Um, you have a beard like Aaron. And so, uh, no, I literally just walked in. I was, uh, I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor at City in a Hill Forest Hills over in Jamaica Plain. And uh, I found out last minute last week that there was a marathon running directly in front of our church building. Um, actually, I run our church. was like, oh, I'm not going to be here next week. I'm running a marathon. I'm like, oh, where's it at? She goes like literally in front of the church. And I'm like, huh. So I went into scramble mode and tried to figure out how we're going to work this out. And I, we, have an, we had an elaborate plan. So getting out of there was a little bit of a challenge. And so I preached, ran right out the door to the car, and now I'm here. So if I sound a little winded, it just means I need better cardio. So I am with you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but, uh, but glad to be with you this morning. It is a joy to always be with you. I bring greetings uh, from our church, uh, uh, your sister church down in Jamaica Plain. We're very thankful for you and what you're doing and, this, and getting to worship with you for the first time in this beautiful room. So excited for what God has done over the last year. Um, I described, I think the last time I was here, I think I described it like you guys were wandering like the Israelites in, in the wilderness for 40 years. And now this is kind of like the promised land. So I'm glad that you guys are, are home. So I'm glad you guys have a, a place to gather. So excited to jump into Genesis chapter five this morning with you. Uh, as we get to look at some weird stuff. I got, I got tagged for the weird stuff this morning. Um, and when we look at, so there are just some odd things in the book of Genesis that we get to tackle. And one of those is genealogies and how old people might be in the biblical text and things like that. Uh, but when we think of genealogy, I think of my grandmother. My grandma loved genealogy stuff. And this is kind of pre-ancestry.com, pre-23andMe. She looked like a conspiracy theorist with newspaper clippings and yarn and string everywhere. And she was able to trace my granddad's side of the family all the way back to some sort of Gaelic royalty in the year 1000. It was pretty incredible to go all the way back and look at that. But in the last 25 years, because of Ancestry.com, the you know, genealogy and interest in genealogy has really ramped up. And you can actually download a, an app, I think it's called the My Family Tree app, and you can actually begin to trace back through all sorts of different records and look at, look at your family. I was able to look back at my own family and see records from my great grandparents who came from Italy that I'd never seen before. And so their names were uh, Giovanni and Michelina Castello. So it was kind of a, kind of a cool uh, little thing to be able to look at. Uh, but for some, the idea of genealogy is a painful thing because maybe you don't know where your family's from. I know some of my wife's side of the family, um, they don't really know really beyond her great-grandparents, uh, particularly for Black Americans because of the horror of slavery. Genealogy is something that is, is a difficult topic or subject because you may not know a lot of your, your, uh, your, your family history. History. Uh, but now more than ever, we're able to trace back and at least through something like 23andMe, know where we're from. Um, but why do we have this urge to look back? Why has there been this great uptick and surge in things like Ancestry.com, 23andMe? Why do we want to know where we're from? And the reason is, is that knowing where we're from, knowing who we are, knowing our ethnicity and our background gives us a sense of place. 
It gives us a sense of meaning. It gives us a sense of purpose and rootedness that comes from knowing who we are because God created our ethnic differences as beautiful. And we're gonna, you guys are gonna see this a little bit later as you get into Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11 and how the Tower of Babel, God dispersing them was actually not him being mad that people from different walks of life and ethnicities were working together. It actually had to deal with oppression and people being a, uh, ethnic diversity spreading throughout the world, that being stifled. Um, ethnic diversity was actually something that was built into God's design through, through, through the diversification of life. And so we see that Genesis is a story of how God blesses a people through one family. And we get to trace their heritage here together this morning. Um, and, and we get to look at this of, of how this people group who uh, made a complete uh, made a, a diversity of cultures, um, how this was not a, a design flaw. This is something that God actually has for us. So you really don't hear a lot of sermons on Genesis chapter five and the beginning of Genesis chapter six. A lot of people just kind of skip on to the flood. And I think that's a shame because I think there's some good principles for us here this morning. So let's see what we can draw from uh, genealogies this morning. So let's, let's dig in. The first thing that a genealogy does is it calls us back to why we're here. It calls us back to why we exist. Uh, the writer of, of this, who we believe to be Moses, uh, was writing a, a beginning and he calls us back to creation. So if you look at the beginning of chapter five, verse one, he says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. He's calling our attention back to Adam, the first created person. He's calling us back to his line so that we can understand that this is a continuation of that same story. It roots us, it calls us back to that. And the reason we need to see this is we need to see and remember that God is faithful. And so let's do a little bit of a, a, a refresher. When God created all things, he said that all things were created what? Good. And when he created people, he said they were created very good. And so he creates man and woman. And he says, even though that they are messed up, even though we saw, as we saw in chapter three and chapter four with the fall of the world, and we saw Cain's line begin to disintegrate, uh, we see that God still created us good. Even though they're still messed up, it's rooted in this creation of male and female, that even though they were no longer morally pure, um, we're still good in purpose and worth. We see in chapter, uh, in chapter five, verse one, that we're made in the likeness of God, meaning that every person has inherent worth and dignity and value that, come, that doesn't matter with how useful you are or what you bring to the table, but simply the fact that you're made in the image of God means that you have value. We're made with purpose, we have responsibilities, trying to root everything back in this idea that you were created for this. This is, this is your heritage. Uh, chapter five, verse two, we see the, the dignity of men and women. We see that male and female, he created them, he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And we cannot say this enough that the Bible's vision for men and women is a very positive vision. And the way that the Bible treat, treated women was completely unheard of in the ancient world. Uh, and oftentimes in the ancient world, women were treated, treated as property. They were treated as lesser than, but the Bible clearly and distinctly says that men and women were created uniquely, distinctly good as equals. That men and women have very tangible differences that are beautiful. Um, there's an incredible, uh, incredible uh, thesis written by a woman who got uh, her doctorate from Southern Seminary, uh, talking about the, the inherent female dignity being made in the image of God. And she talks about if you're a woman, everything you do as a woman, you, do, you inherently do as a woman. Everything you do is feminine and you do so beautifully in the image of God. We see the same thing as for men. Everything you do is masculine because you're a male made in the image of God. So we see this dignity that he's coming back to over and over and over again. 
And we see God's faithfulness also in this line. We see his faithfulness to Adam and Eve because when we see this, you know, that he created Adam and when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Who's missing from this line? Cain is missing from this line. As we talked about uh, last week, what, what did Cain do? Cain killed his brother. I'm sure he touched his Pop-Tart or something. Something negative happened. Uh, he, he, you know, Cain is unrepentant. I don't know, you never had a sibling if you never want to kill them over a Pop-Tart. Um, but God blesses them through the birth of another son, Seth. We see that there's a continuation of the promise that God said in chapter three, verse 15, that a son of Eve would come and crush the serpent's head once and for all, the first gospel. This promise is still alive. So we see that this is happening. And then we also begin to see that how, how God populates the earth. Chapter four, we see the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. We see that God beginning to repopulate the earth through other sons and daughters. So why is all this important? Why does all this matter? Why does, why does God go to such detail to make sure that Moses reminds us of all of this history and tells us of all of these people and all the years that they lived and when they died? Why does all this matter? Because history shows us who we are. It shows us who we are and it shows us God's purpose. And it shows us that we have a God who is over time in history. I had a seminary professor who used to talk about how history is really just a subcategory of theology. Because if theology is the study of who God is, then history is really a, a studying God's creation, God's history, God's story. And it's hard for us to see what God is doing sometimes in the moment. You know, you're sitting here today on November 13th, 2022. You've got classes, you've got deadlines, you've got relational drama. It's hard to see what God might be doing in the middle of the story. But that little part of your story, which matters to God, fits into God's grander scheme for all eternity. It's hard for us to see that. It's, it's hard for us to understand, but if you're able to look back over the months, the years, the decades, you would actually be able to see how God is using this very moment for his glory. And that's one of the benefits we have of reading the book of Genesis is that we get to see the story of God's people, not just in a moment, but we get to see the story of God's people over years, over decades. You look at Abraham, which we'll, co we'll cover in the spring. If you look at Abraham, when God came to Abraham, God came to him when he was 75 years old. It was 25 years before God came through on his promise. We get the benefit of seeing that, but if you're Abraham in the moment, you can't see how God's working all these years and months of infertility with Sarah out. In fact, even, even the Reformation, if you look at Martin Luther, there was a man named Jan Hus, who 100 years almost to the day that Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door was being burned at the stake. And his name Hus literally means, it means goose. Um, he says, one day there will, you may cook this goose, which that's where the, you know, the term your goose is cooked comes from. He says, you may cook this goose, but there's one who will come that you cannot. Foreshadowing the day that Luther would come and when Luther comes into power, he's living in Germany. And who did the German governor hate? He hated the Roman, Holy Roman Emperor. So every time the Holy Roman Emperor would try to stop Luther, the, the governor would go, oh, no, no. And he would insulate him and make sure that the Reformation actually happened. All of this happened because God is a God over history. And every person in this genealogy, God is sustaining them and using them for a greater purpose, which is to keep the line of a Savior to come alive. So we see that it connects us to why we're here. The second thing that a genealogy does is it connects you to a people. 
This was written by Moses for a particular group of people. It was written for the Hebrew people. He's writing this to a people who are in exile. They're they're coming out of being in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They're wandering around the desert and they're going, what are we possibly doing here? He's reminding them that you have a great heritage in men like Adam and Noah and Abraham and women like Sarah and Rebecca. You have a great heritage in them. Now, a few things may jump out to you just immediately as you read some of these numbers, as you're going, okay, these people, first of all, seem really, really old. Um, They seem really, is this a typo? Uh, What's going on here? You see the lifespan. These are all really great questions for Pastor Aaron after the service. Um, But there are two possibilities when we read a text like this. When we come across something in the Bible that's hard for us to understand, and honestly, kind of with our desensitized, cynical, 21st century Western minds, we read a passage like this and go, whatever, like that, we just need to, we we just need to skip that. But there's a couple of possibilities. One is, and I believe these are both, these are both valid possibilities. One is that people just lived longer. Like people just, this was a world pre-flood, people just lived longer. And one idea is that maybe the full effects of the flood hadn't taken effect yet. The fall is slowly encroaching. And it's kind of like if you've ever unplugged a refrigerator by accident. The meat inside the refrigerator doesn't go bad immediately, but if it's in there long enough, it starts to go bad. And if you were to put a new thing of meat in there, it would go bad a lot faster. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's the idea that, um, that there's just, the full effect of the fall hadn't happened yet and hadn't limited lifespans. But if you look at chapter six, verse three, we see that it seems to be that God eventually begins to limit lifespans to 120 years. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that we're staring at what, looking at what's called an open genealogy. So back in the, in the ancient world, when they were writing a genealogy, they may not have always been as tight as you and I would be, as literal. And so these would have been maybe described as kind of fig, figureheads or representative heads of a group of people. So the, that 900 years or 807 years would have been representative of a whole group of people. And these were kind of the important figureheads in the genealogy. Now, the important part here that we do need to remember, whichever one of those we choose to believe, is that these are historical figures because the Bible treats them as historical figures. We also can see that both ideas really could possibly account for how the world would be populated. You could have 10 people who just had a lot of kids. They'd have their own show on Lifetime. They have lots of children and they populate the world, or it could be an open genealogy and there's lots of people populating the world. But here's what I do wanna just, just warn you about. Don't run to the easy solution. Don't just say, oh, well, the open genealogy sounds a whole lot better because it just seems a whole lot more rational. Look, if God wanted people to live 900 years, you know what God could do? He could have them live 900 years. He's a God who created the world. He's a God who sent his very own son to take on flesh. He can do whatever he wants to do. We have to approach the scriptures with a sense of mystery, with a sense that we don't have all the answers. What did God tell Job? He said, who were you there when I plumb the depths of the ocean floor. Do you, do you understand? Who, who are you, oh man? Do you, do you understand me? So, so don't just run to the easy interpretation. Do the hard work of digging deep on this stuff. What we do see is it connects Adam to Noah. We see 10 generations that are laid out and if these ages are literal, we would see that Noah's father, Lamech, if you were to line up these, geneal- these lifespans on a, on a piece of paper, Noah's father, Lamech, would have known Adam. It's pretty amazing to think about. 
that he would have been able to tell his son about all the mistakes that Adam did. And you know that Lamech was giving Adam a hard time. Like, was that fruit really that good? Like, was it really worth it to make all of this toil happen? He would have known Adam. We also see that if you line up all their lives, that all of them would have died prior to the flood. And in fact, Methuselah would have died the same year as the flood. It's pretty incredible. All this is interconnected. What we see is that God was sustaining a people to lead up to Noah. He was connecting Noah to a people, to a heritage. And if you look at the first five, if you look at Seth, you look at Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, you look at Jared, you don't really see a whole lot. You don't really see much detail about their lives. These very long lives captured in a few words. You see their name, their children, how long they lived, they died. And it's a little bit like if you were to read an obituary. You have a friend or a family member who dies and you read their obituary and their lives are captured in just a few words, but you can't capture the totality of someone's life in a paragraph. And this strikes me in a couple of ways because one, our lives get so frantic with stuff. Our lives get so frantic with busyness and deadlines and getting kids to practice and emails that never seem to end. But in the end, you're not gonna be remembered for how quickly you responded to your professor's email. You're not gonna be remembered if you got that promotion or not. We give so much time to things that don't matter eternally. What I think this calls us to do is to slow down and ask ourselves, am I giving myself to things that are eternal? Am I prioritizing things in my life that are going to matter for eternity, that are gonna matter to God and move the kingdom of God forward? The second thing I see is that no one is unimportant. You may feel like your life is a blip or a byline, but obscurity does not mean insignificance. Look, look we're, we're Bostonians. You're either a Bostonian by birth or a Bostonian by college. You, you are here. And our greatest fear in Boston is that people will not know we exist, that we're, gonna be, that we're, we're not going to succeed, that we're going to be just kind of running an everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill life. And we're willing to sacrifice. We're willing to be lonely. We're willing to go into debt in order that people will know that we did something significant. But as Scotty Smith said, he said, for the rest of our days in the world, we'll, we will either, they'll either be spent pursuing trifles, trivialities, and trophies, or we'll spend ourselves on things that won't last, matter little, and are more about us, or we will invest ourselves in living out the implications of the gospel, offering the first fruit of Jesus's kingdom on earth and serving the least and the lost in our midst. Noah's line was committed to being faithful to God. And they did so mostly in obscurity. Jeff Vanderstelt said that Jesus lived the first 30 years of his life with no one knowing who he was. Are we willing to do the same? God uses our faithful, quiet obedience for his glory. We also see how God preserves a people, how he's faithful through the generations. And obviously this is a righteous family because if you look at the end of chapter four, verse 26, talking of Enosh, it says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So in a world full of, of wickedness and a world full of evil and a world spiraling out of control, this family was committed to walking with God. And then we see Enoch in chapter five, verses 21 through 24. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah three 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God 
took him. He had such an intimacy with God that he didn't experience death. He didn't die. And this foreshadows what life with God through Jesus is going to be like for us when one day we are called to God's side and we spend eternity with him. We also see Methuselah who lived the longest. We see Lamech, his son, who that name probably sounds familiar. That's probably a fairly common name. Like, you know, just because you know one John, this jerk doesn't mean this other John's a jerk. This Lamech's a better Lamech. He's different than Cain's Lamech. And he has a son named Noah. He, he names his son Noah. He says, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has caused, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from painful toil of our hands. He named his son a prophecy, a prediction. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you'll see people name their children something as they hope for their life, what they hope their lives would be like. We don't really do, like, do that. You name your child whatever because you just like that name. Uh, we were looking for names for our oldest daughter, Lily. We were trying to find a name and I found this really beautiful Hebrew name. I said, that's gorgeous. Let's see what that means. And the name meant balding goat. And so I was like, let's, let's not do that one. I don't want that to be prophetic. I don't want, her, I don't want that to be her life. Um, but Lamech has this desire for Noah's life that he would be the one to bring relief. That's what the word Noah means, relief or rescue. Because for 10 generations spanning thousands of years, the people had experienced nothing but cursing and toil of the ground. They're longing for redemption. They're longing for the one to come and crush the serpent's Head and God preserved a people to bring a savior, to bring Noah, which you're going to cover more next week when you look at the flood. And he preserves this and he brings forth this, this one who's going to bring relief in the midst of a broken world. We saw this in, in Cain's line last week about how Cain's family just continued to get worse. And then you see it at the beginning of chapter six that the world is just falling apart. And the question is, is how do you follow the Lord in a broken world? How, how, do you, how do you please God when you, you're in a classroom where no one else does? How, how do you try to walk faithfully before God in a world that's broken? You do so because God sustains you. Genealogies within a broken world, with a broken world as the background, show us something else. They clearly show us as we are. They clearly show us as we are. We live in a world where, you know, we have smartphones and there's the internet and there's, you know, there's TikTok and all these things that you really can't get away with anything. If you do something in public, there's a camera looking at you, right? You get away with nothing. One of the greatest evidences for the truthfulness of the Bible to me is that the Bible tells on itself. These people make themselves look like idiots. If I'm writing this book and I'm trying to make myself, you know, make this seem believable, I'm going to try to write it in such a way where I look really good. I'm going to try to sell as many copies as I possibly can. But the Bible doesn't paint people in a better light. The Bible shows people just as we are, and it shows the consequences of sin. And the Bible shows the compounding debt of sin. What does it say about every single person in the genealogy? And you can read it if you want to. Every single person other than Enoch, nine out of 10, what does it say about their destiny? And he died. That, that, that is the greatest consequence that we face because of our sin. And that shows us that the consequences of sin is death and that none of us escape the consequence of sin. God will judge sin and he is just to do so because when we look at something like this, the Bible's like a mirror. It shows us our hearts. And as good as these people were in a really sinful generation, they were still sinners. 
They were still messed up. And we imagine, when we imagine how we kind of get ourselves out of this mess, we imagine that we're just going to kind of progress or, or outwork our issues. We're going we're, we're to have better education or better medicine or better policies. And that's what's going to deal with the brokenness of the human heart. But all, we, all of us know that we're decaying. We're all dying. We, we can try as hard as we possibly can to overcome it. We improve our bodies. We're constantly doing maintenance. Our, our cars are falling apart. They're rusted we, we, because we live in New England. We're, we're doing this thing because we live in a world that's decaying. And we see this, that as the population increases in verse six, sin increases, becomes more and more evident. I don't know if any of you grew up in a small town, but the big, the warning about the city was, you know, the city is dangerous. You don't go to the city because that's where all the sinners live. No, it's just there are more sinners per capita in a city than there are in your small rural town. There's just as much infidelity, just as much murder, just as much crime that happens there. It's just, there's less people. As more and more people are coming onto the scene, they see more and more sinfulness. There's a, and there's an opportunity here to see all sorts of ways that we try to live apart from God's will. And here's where you do begin to kind of run into a couple of, I'll call them interpretive hairballs. Um, who are the sons of God in, chapter, in verse one? Who are the Nephilim? And what do we do with that? Um, and again, Pastor Aaron will answer all your questions. When it comes to sons of God, I think that there are three options. These are the three options, and these are kind of the three broader interpretations of who these, uh, these, these people would be. One is that the sons of God would be angels. And there's one theory that the sons of God came and had children with the, the women of earth, and they created, and this, they see a connection between verse one and verse four, that they created the Nephilim, that these Nephilim were like the monsters, if you watch Space Jam or Space Jam 2. Um, they were like kind of these big, like, burly, massive men that were part angel, okay? Um, the second idea is that the sons of God were these tyrant kings. They were kind of despots who would use and abuse their power in order to force themselves upon, kind of, upon women. They would use, you know, uh, use their right as kings to do that. And the third idea is that this is the line of Seth or the line or, or people just in general having, you know, having, uh, having children together or, or having relationships together. And so again, the Nephilim, if, if it was the angels who were the sons of God, they're kind of these giant offspring. But what I tend to believe actually is that the most likely option is that this is just men and women kind of choosing whatever, whoever they wanted to be with, kind of at, at the expense of godliness, at the expense of, you know, of looking at God and asking what would honor God. They're saying, I'm just going to kind of marry whoever. And so I believe that when we look at that and then look at verse four, that the Nephilim are really just kind of genetically superior people. It's kind of like if you've ever seen a pro athlete, if any of you ever met like the left tackle for the Patriots or, or an NBA basketball player, if you've ever met a Celtics player, they look like they're some other species. They're giants. Like I'm 6'3". I, I walk in front of some of these. I met Aaron Judge a couple of months ago. Aaron Judge dwarfs me. He's six foot eight. He, I think he might be the, if you look up Nephilim in the Bible or in the dictionary, there's Aaron Judge. There's a picture of him. I think they're just genetically superior people. LeBron James probably fits into that category. The, and I believe the writer is, it was, is using this name because you would have known who they were. If you were talking about the, like the 27 Yankees, that they were called Murderer's Row. They're the greatest baseball uh, lineup in history. You'd have known who they were if you were living in 1927. I think they're the same as the mighty men being described in uh, verse four. People that 
that were looked to as heroes, that people told great stories about, that seemed to be bigger than life, and, and we still do the same thing. These, these men of renown, they're people that we honor because of their beauty or we honor because of their accomplishments, completely divorced from their character. Does that not sound like the world we live into? Where we honor strength, we honor speed, we honor intelligence, we honor physical beauty above character and godliness. And so we see the sons of God, Seth's line, marrying whoever they want to marry without regard for godliness. And in chapter six, verse four, we see this, this type of human pride that's so obsessed with achievement that we can do it without a concern for God or his glory. And so God sees all of this in verse five. He saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now think about the last time the Bible described God as seeing something. He saw the creation and it was good. Here he sees creation and it is wicked. We see that this evil is both out in the world and in our hearts. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. You could see it. If you watch the news, you would see it. But it also resides in the heart because the intentions of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Lyle Esslinger says that the, the attempt by man to become more than he is, is the result in his becoming less. They're coming undone. And all of this goes back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What were they wanting to do there? They were wanting to be more. They were wanting to determine what was right or good. And what this shows is it shows because sin is out in the world and it's in our hearts, we're never just going to figure this out. We're never going to educate our way out of this. We're never going to out-effort it. We're never going to strategize our way to holiness. And how does God respond to just the prevalent wickedness of our hearts and of the world? It says in verse 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Literally, it broke God's heart. Regret there because God is sovereign doesn't mean that God is, is sorry that if something was his fault. But as K.A. Matthews says, he said, God's response of grief over the making of humanity, however, is not remorse in the sense of sorrow over a mistaken creation. Not saying he made a mistake. Our verse shows that God's pain has its source in the perversion of human sin. The making of man is no error. It is what man has made of himself. God expresses sorrow because God is not an emotionless robot. Now, God's emotion in ways described in the Bible is, is anthropomorphic, meaning that it's meant to help us relate to it as people. But the way God expresses what we would describe as emotion is always appropriate. It's always correct. Anytime that God is angry in the Bible, it's, it's righteous anger. It's right anger. Anytime God expresses love or mercy or justice or empathy, it's always appropriate. And this shows the reason that our sin is so offensive is it grieves God to his heart. It breaks his heart. Why do I try not to offend my wife? It's not because there's a list of rules somewhere saying, well, you know, you shouldn't do this. I'm not gonna do this because she's gonna get mad at me. I love my wife. I don't, I don't, not, I don't not offend her because I'm afraid I'm going to get in trouble. I, I try not to offend her because I love her. And it's the same reason for why you and I should address the wickedness in our hearts is because why should we try to please him? Because he loves us and we're supposed to love him. 
And it's love that motivates faithfulness. And what's being exposed here is a people who have left their love for a God who created them. And what did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll what? Obey my commands. And we see God's response to sin in verse seven. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, when you think about wiping out everyone and everything, your first thing might be to say, hey, well, I object. That is not fair. How is it that every single one of these people is just going to be just wiped off the face of the earth? But God's not fickle. He's not quick-tempered. The mythical gods who the people would have been tempted to follow after would get mad and react on a dime, but, and they would be, people would be fearful that they would be vengeful. But you have to be, remember, God has been patient for thousands of years. For thousands of years, God has held back his judgment, inviting people, pursuing people, asking them to come to himself. He let them live for a really long time. And another way to actually see chapter six, verse three, is that his day shall be 120 years is actually the distance from this warning to the flood. That even then, even after God decided to wipe out the entire world, he gave the world time to turn it shows us sin's seriousness and we, we have to see ourselves as we are. We, we have to see how evil we are. And if we're honest, we like the idea of God's judgment as long as there's kind of a buffer or halo around us. We love the idea of God judging others and making things right in the world, but not our own hearts. If God's gonna truly deal with evil, truly deal with injustice, truly deal with oppression, truly deal with human sin, he's gonna have to do so thoroughly and that includes dealing with us. You have to see how bad you actually are to know how desperate you need to be for the grace of God. And we see in verse eight, we see God offer this grace. He says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Word but is like a giant eraser. It erases everything. There, there's still hope here. There's favor to be found. And the word favor here means undeserved grace. Why did God choose Noah? It wasn't because Noah was sinless. He was clearly better than most around him. Noah was righteous because of grace. Alan Ross says, it, it, it is not that Noah was the most righteous person on earth, and so God decided to save him. No, he was a sinner, and God saved him from the judgment by his grace. He chose Noah by grace, and what does Noah do? Noah responds with faith. It's the same thing for us, that we are saved by grace through faith, that God would extend the opportunity to be saved, to give his very own son on the cross for us. And how does he save us? By faith, by us trusting in that salvation. And we see Noah does this because Hebrews 11.5 says, by faith, Enoch was taken up. Uh, talking about the same with Enoch. Um, but by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Both Noah and Enoch trusted God by faith in his grace. He was pleased by what? That he trusted God enough to walk intimately with him. See, faith is acting on the trusting, uh, acting on the trust that God is gracious. That God would save humanity through Noah and that, that's grace through faith. 
It's the same for you and I. We are rescued by this and we look forward to a better savior. Now God's genealogy runs past all of this, all the way to Jesus, all the way past Noah to Jesus that a sinful and perfect people would be longing for a redeemer. And by faith, you and I have been grafted and have been adopted into this family line because of our faith and trust in Christ. Let's pray. 